Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 22nd, 2014. It's our light episode today, another Ernie Lassman lecture. These are just fantastic, fantastic teachings by... uh, Pastor Ernie Lassman. I'm very excited to keep working our way through this. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and compare what it says in context. Now, all of that being said, all of that being said, um, once a week, we do a program that we call our light episode. It's not that the topic is light. In fact, usually it's, uh, there's a lot of depth and meat to it. Um, it's just that it's a singular topic that, you know, that we choose. And we've been working our way through a series of classes presented by Pastor Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. This is his adult information class, his basics uh, of the Christian faith. We've been calling it Christianity 101. Now, what I think I, I should tell you here is, is rather something interesting about this particular class. Uh, now that you've been listening to these classes for several weeks now, um, one of the things I find fascinating about what Ernie Lastman does is that he teaches these classes on a regular basis at Messiah Lutheran Church uh, in Seattle. And uh, every time he offers this series of classes, he makes sure to send out brochures uh, inviting people in the neighborhood, in and around Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle to come and learn the basics of the Christian faith. You know, know, kind of the idea, if you've ever wanted to know what Christianity teaches, but you've been afraid to ask, or you you don't know who to ask, come to our adult information class and uh, we'll teach you the basics of of, uh, Christianity. And he uh, traditionally has received a great response every single time he uh, he teaches the course. And so, um, in fact, I've actually had the opportunity to speak to a few people who've become Christians, who are literally actually 
Christians. You know, they came as pagans, and through the course of going to these adult information classes, which were offered with no strings attached, just come and learn what Christianity is about. In the course of learning what Christianity is about, they've been brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So um, if you are looking for an evangelism uh, you know, project, some way of, of thinking, how do I reach out? How can our church reach out to the community? Answer, talk to your pastor and have your pastor hold his own version of uh, these types of lectures and Get a go ahead and buy a mailing list and uh, and you know have a brochure printed up. I, I've seen the quality of brochure that uh, Pastor Lastman puts out when he does his adult information. Let's just put it this way: it's uh, colored paper run through a Xerox machine. Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's not fancy, but he you know he gets a list and then they send it out and they get a decent response each and every time. So. You're thinking, what is a way that my congregation can reach out to people with the gospel? Well, Pastor Ernie Lassman, this is the way, uh, they, this is one of the ways they do it at Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. I thought you would know, would like to know that. So without any further ado, we're going to dive right into today's lecture. It's going to be, the, uh, well, this is part two of a two-part mini-series within the greater series on uh, Jesus Christ. And so without any further ado, here's Pastor Ernie Lassman. Okay, well, let's go to Jesus Christ, part two. Okay, page 30. Dead and buried. There the biography of mortals end. Everybody dies. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Okay? And Jesus died, but that was not the end. What occurred on the third day after he laid in the grave? Acts 2, 24. Words are very plain, aren't they? God raised him to life again, setting him free from the pangs of death because it could not be that death should keep him in its grip. So the message of the Christian faith is something that seems impossible. This man, Jesus Christ, who is really dead, on the third day became alive and rose from the dead, never to die again. And we'll be talking about, well, where is he? I'll talk about that. We have to, but we're going to go see, we're going to go sequentially. So you have to bear with me. We're, we're going to go step by step by step. So bear with me. We'll get there. We'll get there. So he's raised from, raised from the dead. Now this is very important. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, we might as well just all head over to Starbucks tonight. Which you know, you know how much I like Starbucks. What would be the point? Of being a Christian, if Jesus is dead, somebody want to explain that to me? There is no point. See? Now, you can be a member of another religion and the founder's dead and it doesn't matter. See the difference I'm taking here between the person of Jesus? Yeah. There'd be no point in having a dead Jesus according to Christianity. Now, uh, we won't look it up, but right after that passage, would you write John 10, 17? You can look it up on your own. John 10, 17. But what Jesus says there is he raises himself from the dead. The Bible speaks three ways. Uh, uh, that uh, uh, God's, the God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit raises Jesus from the dead. That's in Romans chapter 1. And Jesus raises himself from the dead. Well, because each person is, is God. Speaks both ways or, or all three ways. Now, why couldn't death hold him? Well, there's many reasons for that. But here's the point I want to make here. 
What brought death into the world? Sin. So in theory then, Jesus should never have died because he had no sin. So why did he die? Well, there's two reasons for it. Number one, what was placed on him? Our sins. Our sins. And the other thing is, uh, Jesus' life... Jesus' life was not taken from him. He gave up his life. It's still it's in John 10, 17, and 18. Says, no one takes my life from me. I'm God. He says, I lay it down of my own accord, and I take it back again. Okay? So he died not because of his sins, but sin brings death because sin was put on him. Okay? And here's the point. Since he was sinless, and since he paid for the sins of the world, that's why death could no longer hold him. Now, remember what I've said all throughout this class, and I'll say it all throughout the rest of this class. Sin and death go together, because sin brings death. And in the Bible, forgiveness of sins and life goes together. Where sin is forgiven, death has been overcome. So sin and death, forgiveness and life. So death could not hold him. And then we see in Revelation 1.18 in our booklet again, this is Jesus speaking at the beginning of the revelation to John. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive for how long? Forevermore. Which kind of gets back to your initial question too, Doug. You know, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death, which we'll talk about in lesson 14. But that's, uh, in other words, what that means is, is Jesus will determine where people go because of their relationship to Him, as we'll see. So from this we learn, uh, Christ became alive. Now, what's so important here then is, remember uh, when we talked about the third commandment, we said the Sabbath, historically, and for Jews, was Saturday, right? Okay. And what we said is that now Christians can worship on any day they want. And we said very early on, there's already evidence in the New Testament already, that they freely chose, Christian freedom, freely chose Sunday to worship, not only because that would set them apart from the Jews, but also because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead, which meant every Sunday would be a celebration of His resurrection. I don't know if I mentioned this in the past or not. I'll say it again if I did. Four, five, six years ago, I forget how long ago, I wrote a messenger article entitled, Why I Hate Easter. Well, that gets everybody's attention. Oh, why does pastor hate Easter? And of course, that was just a ploy to get people to read the article. And what I was trying to say is, unfortunately, most people, and including most Christians, think we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead once a year. And it's called what? Easter. What I want to remind you is... If you understand the Christian faith, and if you understand what worship is, which we're going to talk about more down the road, okay, and what this is all about, every Sunday is a celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because every Sunday we gather around, not a dead Jesus, but a living Jesus, who, as I'm going to explain to you in Lesson 12, gives us His grace and forgiveness through what I'm going to teach you, the means of grace, which are going to be His Word and sacraments, which I'll explain to you. So we gather around, every Sunday is Easter, not just one Sunday. Okay, now, so he, he's going to be raised from the dead. Now the next point here, number two, is to whom did he show himself alive? 
What I'm going to explain to you here is we only have two passages, and I'm going to have to explain a little bit. There's There's a saying in the Apostles' Creed, and that's one of the main ecumenical creeds in Christendom. You know, well over 90% of Christians confess the Apostles and the Nicene Creed, which are summaries of the Christian faith. And in the Apostles' Creed, it says that he descended into hell. That's what I'm going to try to explain to you. Especially, not all Christians understand that phrase the same. So let me tell you where we're going to go with this, then we'll look at the passages real quickly. Some Christians think that when he says he descended into hell talks about his suffering the wrath of God for our sins. That is not the intent of the phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Okay? Because we're going to see when we look up the Bible passage on this, his descent into hell took place after he was raised from the dead, which I will show you. See? So the descent into hell is not the same thing as his suffering hell. When did he suffer hell? He suffered hell while he was still alive on the cross when he was being punished for our sins, which is the definition of hell, to be punished by God for sin. And and you'll see it when it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you have to wait till lesson 14, uh, although I'm going to preach on it next Wednesday. I'm preaching on that phrase next Wednesday in Lent, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the definition of hell, which I'll show you in Lesson 14. Hell is not fire and darkness, because fire and darkness, how would that go together, right? Fire and darkness are images, figures of speech saying, you don't want to go there. The essence of hell that I'll show you in Lesson 14 is to be utterly and totally, completely separated and cut off from God and to be punished for your sins. That's what happened when Jesus was still alive on the cross. So he, he experienced hell while he was alive on the cross. His descent into hell is actually going to be his victory parade through downtown hell, which I'll show you. Okay, so with that background, let's look at the uh, one Bible passage we have here in your booklet under number 2. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19 in your green booklet. Now notice it says he was made alive and then went someplace, right? I'm going to explain the whole passage to you. But if he was made alive... Right? This means that the descent into hell has to take place after he's vivified, made alive in the tomb. Right? He's made alive. Okay. And then what, what did he do after he was made alive? He went and preached to the spirits kept in prison. Oh boy, we almost have to talk about every one of those words. First of all, prison is hell. And I'm not going to look up all the passages, but I'll give you, I'll give you a couple here. And you can look up on your own. You just have to trust me. Look them up on your own. Revelation, R-E-V. So Revelation 20, 7 and 13. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9. And Jude 6. Prison here is, uh, is hell. Okay? Kept in prison. Now, uh, the spirits. The spirits here, in the context of, of Peter... Uh, are the unbelievers in the days of Noah. You might remember God brought the flood on the earth because of all the people in the world, and we don't know how many people were in the world at the time of Noah, uh, but there were lots, don't know how many. In all the world, there were only eight believers. Can you imagine that? How would you like to live in the world today where there's only eight believers? The world is already bad enough the way it is, right? And it was really wicked. Only eight believers in the whole world, Noah's family. 
And these unbelievers at the time of Noah come to represent all the unbelievers of all times. And that's where their spirits are. Um, Again, we'll talk about this in lesson um, 14, but let me do it now. When somebody dies, their body goes to the the ground, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Ah, but the invisible visible part of you goes to a different place. The soul of an unbeliever goes to Hades. The soul of a believer goes to paradise to be with Christ. That's what he's talking about. So these spirits here that he's talking about, and you can look up those other passages on your own, are evil spirits like the devil and the demons and the spirits of dead unbelievers. Now to the left of the word spirit, I'm going to give you another passage you can look up on your own to show about the spirits kept in prison. Luke 16, 19 to 24. Some of you may know it. That's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, and the poor man. Yeah. Okay, so prison is hell. Spirits are the spirits of dead unbelievers and the evil spirits, the evil angels. So what did he do to preach there? Okay. He went there to preach not good news. Some people believe, which goes completely against all the Bible, that Jesus preached a second chance for these people. That's not what he did. Now, there's several reasons for that. First of all, the Bible says there's never a second chance once you die. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, I forget the verse, um, uh, 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 the, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, a- after death comes the judgment. There's, there's no second chances after death. So he didn't go to prayer to preach a second chance. The other reason we know that is the word here in the Greek for preach is not the word for preaching the gospel. There's a very specific word in the Greek New Testament that means to preach the gospel. That's not this word. It's just a, it's just a general word for proclamation. Okay? Well, this is after he's made alive, okay? And we're going to look up another passage in just a minute. Now, uh, I can't look up all the passages. You have to trust me until we get a little further down the road here. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, okay, he went from doing this to... Okay. So what he did, when he was made alive in the tomb, he's in his new glorified body. Some of you may know your New Testament well enough to remember people didn't recognize him real quickly. Remember? Right? In the garden, she didn't recognize him real fast. The disciples on the road to Demaeus did. It's because he's in his new glorified body. And here's my point. And we'll look up another passage, then I'll open up for questions. In his new glorified body, which is capable of doing all kinds of things, as we're going to see, okay, he went to hell, Hades, Hades, wherever that is, and he proclaimed his victory over the powers of darkness. Or the way I like to say it, in his new glorified body, having died for the sins of the world, which means he, by dying for the sins of the world, he undid everything that took place in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? Took care of sin, took care of the devil, could, took care of death. Right? Those all go together. Right? And God's wrath. And so what he did then, once the victory is complete, how do we know it's complete? Well, there's many Bible passages. The easiest one for you to remember is on the cross. He said, it is finished. Everything's done. I've done everything for the salvation of humanity. 
So then once he was made alive in the tomb, since he had done everything for the salvation of humanity, he basically went to Hades, wherever that is, and he proclaimed his victory over sin, death, the power of the devil. Okay? Or as I like to say, he had his victory prayed through downtown hell. Now let's look up one other passage. It kind of gives a little insight here, and then I'll, I'll pause here for your comments and questions. Would you write this passage down? We'll look it up. Colossians, C-O-L, 2, 13 to 15. This is really the only other passage that kind of impacts on this descent into hell. Uh, the Peter passage is the most clear, but with this Colossians passage, we get a little bit of uh, insight too. When you were dead in your sins, that means spiritually dead, before you became a Christian, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, that's a good Jewish way of saying it, God made you alive. And it gets back to your question, Doug, that we'll get to eventually. Who made you alive? God made you alive, spiritually. Right? You were born again by Him. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. How did He do that? Having canceled the written code. What do you think the written code is? The law. The law. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was what? Against us and stood opposed to us. In other words, all the times that you have broken the law of God, that was all canceled. He took it away. Well, how did he do that? Nailing it to the cross. Now, let me kind of do this, then I'll go on. It's like if we had a computer readout of all your sins of thought, word, and deed of your whole life. Okay? And like Jacob Marley tells Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning, it's a ponderous list. It's like we take all your sins. Here's a cross here, if you can see it. There's a cross on all the windows. It's like we took all your sins, all this readout, everything you did, and put it on the cross. And when Jesus was punished and suffered and died for your sins, your computer readout, when he died, your debt was canceled. It was taken away. Okay, That's the gospel. That's what he did. Now, what happened after he did that? What did I do with my Bible? There it is. What did he do then? Okay, now watch what happens. See, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, those are the spiritual, right? The devil and all the demons and everything, Right? Having disarmed all the powers and authority, he made a what? Public spectacle of them triumphing over the cross. Now here, it's in that last phraseology there that I get that idea that the descent into hell is Jesus' victory prayed through downtown hell. And here's the imagery. Because remember, the New Testament was written in the days of the Roman Empire. And whenever a Roman general went out to battle and he defeated his enemy and come back triumphantly to Rome in all his general regalia and everything in his chariot, right? He'd have all the troops behind him, and he to the crowds of Rome would come in in his chariot, and right behind his chariot, all shackled up, would be the defeated what? The defeated general of the opposing army. That's the exact words that are being used in our text here. So just as a Roman general would do that to his defeated opponent, that's what Jesus did after his... Uh, he was made alive in the tomb. He went to hell and had a victory prayed through downtown hell. And who's behind Jesus' chariot? Now remember, that's a figure of speech. Don't take his chariot literally now. Okay. But who's behind the chariot of Jesus? Death, the devil, everything else, right? That's the imagery that's used there. It's almost the exact same kind of language that's used of the Roman victory parades. Okay, that's all I can do because we've got to do other things. So, But any quick comment, question, confusion. So the descent into hell is victory, not suffering. Yes. Okay, 
people that lived before Jesus yeah. had died. Yes. Like Adam and Eve, for example. Yeah, right. I know where you're going, but go ahead and go there. given the chance to believe in Jesus. So oh, sure they were. Yeah. Sure they were. Yeah, sure they were. Let me show you how. It's a good question. I'm not trying to be flippant with you. It's a good question. Uh, there, there is no other Savior than Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. I don't know if you were with us. I can't remember. But when we looked up the Bible, the whole Bible is about Jesus. Okay? Jesus Christ is the heart and center of the Bible. Right? Okay? The message of the Old Testament is the Savior is, is coming. Right? You can read this. Bad... Okay. And the message of the New Testament is the Savior has come. Okay. Let me get a better one here. And so, in the New Testament, I'll start there. In the New Testament, sorry, that's really light. Sorry about that. We are saved by faith in the Savior who has come. In the Old Testament, they're saved by faith in the Savior who is or was coming. And I'll show you that more and more in, in future lessons. There's only one Savior. If you've been with me, you can see that. When was the very first promise of the gospel given? I told, tried to show you. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. I've showed you passages in the past. Uh, Jesus is not an afterthought of God. This has been planned from when? All eternity. And it was given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Finally, what tribe? Tribe of Judah. What family in Judah? David. Right? So they were saved in the same way. And that was the whole message of the Old Testament, too, was to get that, that word out to all people. That's what Abraham, um, blah, 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 blah. that's what Noah was trying to do. Right? Matter of fact, he, uh, God gave the people 120 more years, we're told, for, Ab- for Noah to preach this seed of the woman gospel type stuff. And they didn't believe. And that's when he finally destroyed the world. So the only difference is, is in the Old Testament, it's promise. In the New Testament, it's Fulfillment. In the Old Testament, we have some information. In the New Testament, we have all the information. Yeah. I mean, you speak to the back no. Adam and Eve, the, yeah. the, there was no Bible written yet. No, but, they, no, but you don't have to have a written form. All you need is oral. Genesis 3, what? 15 was told to who? You see, yeah, see, exactly. Yeah, you're thinking about the Bible. But when it was first said, it was said orally by God himself. That's a pretty trustworthy source. So Adam and Eve heard this very first promise of the seed of the woman, the gospel, the Savior from God himself. So that's right. And then somewhere along the line, and far earlier than what scholars used to think, scholars used to think writing came very late. We now know writing was very early. But we're not against the idea that there might have been, for a while, briefly, an oral tradition. And then eventually the oral traditions put in written tradition. Yeah, yeah. And I'll try to do this more and more, I promise you, especially in Lesson 9, Justification by Grace Through Faith. I'll revisit this. Yeah. So it's a good question. Um, okay, well, let's move on. You can always ask it next week during a review or another time, but I'm kind of watching the clock a little bit. So the very first thing he did, he's made, picture this, he's dead, in, he's dead in the tomb. He's made alive. His spirit, which he gave up to the Father, returns to his body, gives him life. Now he's in his new glorified body. And by the way, this didn't take forever. In a split second, he goes to Hades, wherever that is, and proclaims his victory over the powers of darkness. Then what happens? Acts 10, 40, 41. God raised him on the third day and made him manifest, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as what? 
witnesses, and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, even though he showed himself to a variety of people, men and women, it's the apostles especially who are the eyewitnesses. By the way, this is very important. Well, you know, the, the Christian faith is a historical faith. This is not myth and legend, you know, like the Greeks and, you know, the, the, the gods on Olympia and stuff like that. Our religion, our faith is historical. And you see that right in the Apostles' Creed, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Not a mythical figure, a real Roman governor in the Roman Empire. So these are eyewitnesses of these things, not wishful thinking. So they were chosen by God as eyewitnesses, and they ate with him and drank with him. Now if we looked up all the passages, why did he eat and drink with him, with them? Not because he had to. Yeah. He hasn't had anything to physically eat and drink for almost 2,000 years. He's eternal. So why did he eat and drink in front of them? And you just have to trust me because we can't spend a lot of time on this one point. It's to show them that the very same Jesus they walked around with, the very same Jesus that was on that cross and suffered and died so horribly, this is the same guy. He really is what? He really is alive. That's why he did those things. Acts 1.3, very similar. He showed himself to these men, the apostles, after his death. And here we go. What does it say? And gave what? Ample proof he was alive over a period of 40 days. He appeared to them and taught them about the kingdom of God. So there are lots of people that saw the resurrected Christ over a 40-day period. By the way, we'll come back to this on Lesson 8 on the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. But during the 40-day period, and I'll get back to this in just a little bit, he would just appear and disappear. Appear and disappear. After his resurrection, he didn't walk around with them all the time like he did before his crucifixion. No. He would appear out of nowhere, just materialize, like Star Trek stuff, and teach them and be with them and then... And then did this over a 40-year period. Steve? 40 days that he appeared off and on from. Is that in comparison to the 40 days he went into wilderness? Good question. 40 is often a symbol in the Bible. It's not accidental. It's usually a symbol for testing and for discipline and for learning. How many, day, how many days was Jesus out in the wilderness? 40. So there's 40 days. Yes, this is the time. And by the way, make a long story short. It's in this 40-day period capped off with the coming of the Holy Spirit that the 12 disciples, you know, well, Judas is gone, but the disciples, who if you know them a little bit, were kind of, you know, they weren't exactly on, on top of their game all the time, were they? It's during this time, Steve, after the resurrection, during this 40 days where they're being taught and capped off with the coming of the Holy Spirit, this is when these apostles are being shaped and molded and finally made into the apostles, where they become the apostolic foundation of the church, which we agree in the creed. I believe one holy Christian, Catholic, and apostolic church, church based upon the teachings of the apostles. So this is where their transformation is taking place. And that's why the word 40 there, I take it literally. I mean, it's literal, but it also has that symbolic meaning as well. Okay, now, uh, the only thing I want you to do, we're not going to look up all those passages, but underneath point B, see where it's 1 Corinthians 15? Just highlight that or circle or do something with it. We're not going to look it up. But in addition, it says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people there. 
So when you add that all together, over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. In other words, this wasn't one person who hallucinated. There were lots of witnesses. And by the way, when you look at critical studies of Christianity, people that don't believe, there's one thing they have a hard time explaining, people who are not believers. How do you explain, if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, how do you explain the fact these people were willing to die? Why, would they be willing to die for a lie? Would they be willing to die for something that really didn't happen? And the critics of Christianity have never successfully been able to answer that from a psychological, historical standpoint. They were willing to die because they knew he was alive. And all these things were true. So, from this we learn, early on Sunday morning, the risen Christ in his new resurrected body descended into hell or Hades and proclaimed his victory over the powers of darkness. On the very same day, because that would just take a moment, that would just take a moment, during the following 40 days, he repeatedly appeared to his disciples and taught them. In other words, I always like to get this in when I can. In other words, every once in a while, he conducted his adult information class during this 40-day period. Number three, would you circle or highlight the word why? Why? Why is Christ's triumphant resurrection so important for us? Romans 1.4, this is the great apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, Italy. By being raised from the dead, he, Jesus, was proved to be what? The mighty Son of God with the holy nature of God himself. Now, the reason for this in the context of that and the other passage we see is... Um, the reason we know he is that, because A, that's what he claimed to be. Okay? And what we're going to see in just a minute is he also predicted his resurrection. Well, it's one thing to predict your death. Anybody could do that, right? I'm going to die at 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon. Well, okay. You might be able to predict it, but who predicts their resurrection and is correct? And here's the point when we look at the other passage too. If Jesus predicted his resurrection and he was right, he is who he claimed to be. And you can believe everything he says. Because if he was right on that one point, he's right on everything, including who he is. Okay. John 2, 19 and 21. Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it again. This is actually our, part of our gospel reading for this coming Sunday. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it, raise it again. But the temple he was speaking about was his body. The Jews he was talking with thought he was talking about the temple that Herod built. That wasn't what he was talking about. He meant the temple of the body. Destroy this body, crucify it. Three days later, I'll raise it up from the dead. And he did. Matthew 28, 6 is very clear. Is it? He has risen what? As he said. Now, we don't have the passages here, but on at least three different occasions in Matthew, at least three different occasions, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen to him. He talks about his betrayal, his suffering, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. On at least three different occasions, he tells them that. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. This is the great apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, Greece. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That means what? Worthless. And you're still in your sins. Now let's get all the connections here. If Christ has not been raised, 
Your faith is worthless. Why? Because if Christ has not been raised, then your sins haven't been paid for. What goes together? Sin and death. And if he's still dead, he obviously didn't overcome sin or death, did he? So he's, he's worthless. If he has not been raised from the dead, our faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, you've got to look for another solution to this reality called sin and guilt and death because it's not him. But notice the word what? If. And he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, but indeed he has been raised from the dead. So our faith is not worthless. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, we are going to pause the lecture right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, the balance of today's lecture on Jesus uh, from Pastor Ernie Lastman at uh, Messiah Lutheran Church, Seattle, Washington. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm, I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god.
Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. No, seriously, Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean midichlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith can cause to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're got not getting this depth and of teaching from your pastor. You really want that. You need it. I need it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 and let me thank you for your support we cannot do what we're doing here without it okay here is the balance of today's lecture by pastor ernie lastman part two in his two-part mini-series in the greater series he's been doing uh, on jesus christ here we go 
Okay, Romans 4.25, Christ was put to death for our trespasses or sins, and He was raised for our what? Justification. Now, we're going to talk a lot, that, a lot about that in Lesson 9, justification by grace through faith, but let's talk about justification again. Justification is a big fancy word for forgiveness. Okay? And to be justified means that now because of Jesus Christ, God looks at me and treats me just if I'd never sinned. Follow that? To be justified means because of what Jesus Christ has done, God looks at me, treats me, and accepts me. Justified, never sinned. That's the good news of the gospel. Remember, never forget the word gospel means good news. If you'll remember what the word gospel means, that'll help remind you what the gospel is, right? Good news, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, victory over death. That's pretty good news. Yeah. Okay, top of the next page, John 14, 19, Jesus says, because I live, you also will live, right? Now, for example, if I was having a, a Starbucks uh, next door across the street with somebody and they weren't a Christian, and they say things like, you know, Pastor Lastman, I know this means a lot to you and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but why in the world would you think that you're going to be raised from the dead? People are dying all over the place, right? And nobody ever comes back. So, oh, 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 wait a minute. You forgot one. Now, here's my point. It would be kind of stupid, would it not, for us to believe in the resurrection of dead bodies if it never happened. That's the key, though, isn't it? Because you and I can believe in the resurrection from the dead for other reasons, too. But the reason I want to make now, we believe in the resurrection of the dead because it's already happened once to this man called Jesus. He was dead. He was made alive. And he's still alive. That's why we're so confident that we too, just what he says, because I live, you also will live. I'll raise you from the dead also, just as I was raised from the dead. So this is really uh, uh, really good news. I had another thought. It'll probably come back to me in just a minute. Escape me. See, Steve, it happens to me too. I had it right there and then I lost it. But it'll come back to me. So this idea of the resurrection is so important. It's everything Okay, then John 11, this is Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. This is so important. Um, if, if you ever go to a Christian funeral, I don't care if it's Lutheran or Missouri Synod Lutheran, if they don't mention the resurrection of the dead, you have not heard a uniquely, distinctly Christian funeral. And I say that because I've heard too many preachers across denominational lines okay, say, you know, so-and-so is buried, but their soul is with Jesus. And that's where they end it. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the end. If you don't hear about the resurrection of the body, you haven't heard a Christian funeral. Because the Christian message is the resurrection of the body. That means you're going to see, assuming you had faith in Jesus, you'll see your mother and father again in her body, a new glorified body, or your wife, or friends. So you're going to see them again. That's what we're going to have, the resurrection. So Christ's resurrection gives us the firm and joyful assurance that Christ is who He claimed to be, the very Son of God. That all His teachings are true, because if He was right about the resurrection, He's right about everything. 
that the Father has accepted His suffering death as fully satisfactory sacrifice for our redemption. Remember we saw that passage, all your sins, the printer, the computer readout of your sins were put right there, and when He died, your debt to God was canceled. There's no debt. You're forgiven. Okay, very, very important. And that all who believe in Christ shall also be raised from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the very foundation of our Christian faith. Christ died for us, and He rose again. This is our gospel, good news, the core of all we preach, teach, and believe. So the resurrection is everything. It is the proof of everything else. Okay, comment question about His resurrection or our resurrection, anything to do along those lines. Please. Upon death, will we immediately get a resurrection body? That's a really good question. Let me say, give you a quick answer now, and I'll try to revisit again in Lesson 14. This is my opinion, but it's a pretty strong opinion. Um, But I don't want to be super dogmatic. This is my belief that when a Christian dies, this is what happens. Our solar spirit leaves our body just like anybody else. Okay, And our solar spirit, as we'll see in Lesson 14, goes to be with Christ in paradise. There are several ways to describe that. But because the solar spirit has entered into eternity... To be with Christ, uh, let me say this, eternity is not ongoing time. Eternity is the absence of time. And so it's my belief, okay, fairly strong, that when our soul goes to be with Christ, it enters into what? Eternity. And so it's not conscious of time. So it's my belief that when we die, a split second later, we're opening our eyes on the day of? the resurrection, even if our solar spirit's been with Christ for a thousand years. See, it's sort of like this. Have you ever, I don't get it very much anymore, but you know when you get a good night's sleep? <laughs> when you get a really good night's sleep, boy, you lay your head on that pillow, and it seems like almost immediately what? It's morning. I think that's where it's going to be with the day of the resurrection for Christians. We're going to close our eyes in death in the hospital or at home or someplace. Next minute, day of the resurrection. But in, in real time, or... In real time, time, our soul maybe has been there for a thousand years with Christ. In the Bible, it's, if there's a period of time uh, until Christ comes back and then everybody gets a, a resurrection body. Yep, that's right. I'm going to talk about it. I don't want to do that now because I'm going to do that especially lesson 14. Obviously, some people aren't going to die. If Jesus Christ came back right now, you and I would not physically die. And I'll tell you what, we, what is going to happen, but you have to come back to lesson 14 for that. But, yeah, yeah, Steve. You know, we won't be recognized as our human body, but as our spirit. Uh, I mean, okay, your loved ones will recognize you. I think. That's, those are tough questions because the Bible's not that specific. And I don't think it's going to matter that much to us. For example, uh, uh, my wife won't be my wife in the next world to come. Yeah. Now, how much we'll know and not know, I don't know. I think those are mainly issues for down here. Because this next world, Steve, is going to be so awesome, we won't be concerned about questions like this. Well, because yeah. what I was thinking was, I mean, okay, the essence of, of each one of us mm-hmm. is our spirit. Mm-hmm. No, 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 you, you, no, I don't want you to do that. No, don't leave the body out. You, you, you are spirit and body. Yeah, and God created your body. And your body is currently the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus died for your body. And the resurrection is about your body. So that's what I'm saying about funerals and things like that. You're going to have, it's going to be, I don't want to get too much into this because I'm going to do this later. So forgive me, I'm I'm going to move on. But it's going to be the same Steve, but really improved. And the same me, 
but really improved. And I'll show you that in Lesson 14. Uh, from, from, uh, uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I figured, okay, body goes back to there. You're right, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, but you're going to be raised from that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, God's going to put that all back together. I, I never thought that the body would be put back together. I mean, it's just the spirit. See, see? You haven't heard enough good funerals. That's the problem. <laughs> no, we're going to talk about that. No, that's, you see, but this is why I do this because I, I, I want to, I would need to get off of this because I've got so many other things to do. We're going to do this lesson 14. Plato taught what you just said. A Greek pagan taught that. But the resurrection from the dead, dust becoming a human being again in a new glorified body, that's Christianity. Well, that's that's yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's right. So he'll do it all over again. Good point. Okay. Yes, please. Why won't you wait for your wife? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Why won't my... Because there won't be any families in heaven. There won't be any children. There's no propagation in heaven. And I'm thinking of specific Bible passages. You're going to have to wait to hear because I don't want to talk about it now with, with going to all the passages. But yeah, she won't be my wife. We won't have a family. We won't propagate. There won't be any children. It'll be a, a new world, a, a different world, a better world. And where we love everybody the same, which we're supposed to do right now. Right In this world, we play favorites. Yeah, but in the next world, we won't play favorites. We'll actually love everybody as we're supposed to. Yes, please. I can't answer that question. You see, that's a, that's a time question. That's a time question with, with, that's with this world. Because in this world, uh, you'd rather, well, I don't know if you would be 18 or 40, but I'd rather be 25 or 30 than, you know, 80 or 90, but that's a, that's a this world question. There won't, be, there won't be any age in the world to come. There won't be any babies in the world to come. Even babies that have died in infancy will have some sort of a, an adult form of a body. There are no ages in the world to come. Yes, please, George. Well, I think you're making two points. So one is uh, we worship a living God, yes. not a totem. Yeah. Also, the second point is... We think of the eternity as being an extension, if you go to this. Exactly. But this is a sinful world. Exactly. Eternity is about worshiping and enjoying the presence of God, our yeah. purpose. We're going to be right in the middle of our Creator and our Savior. Yeah. But I need to move on, because I know you stay here forever, and i got tons of stuff yet to do, and we're going to do this in Lesson 14. But say, this whole age is, is going away. The world, as you now understand and know, is going to pass away. And God's going to create a new one. And it's going to be much better. Yeah. So just have to trust me till we get back to that lesson 14. Okay. Uh, what did God, what did Jesus command after his resurrection? Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, now this is after his resurrection, before his ascension into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now make sure everybody gets this. Okay. Watch up here. Here's Jesus. Okay. Jesus the man, the God man, is talking to his disciples. All authority has been given to. Now, who is me? Jesus. I took it off. How many Jesuses are there? One. Not two. One Jesus who is God and man in one person. All authority is given to me, Jesus. Not only on earth, but where? Heaven. And heaven here means the dwelling of God. Whatever you can say about God. You can say about this man, Jesus. All authority has been given to him. Now, let me make this clear. According to his divine nature, he already has that authority, doesn't he? 
So whenever the Bible talks about Jesus receiving something from God, it means his human nature. Whatever you can say about the divine nature, you can now say about the man Jesus. Are you following me? That's who says that. Jesus says that. All authority in heaven and earth. Whatever you can say about God, this man now has. Heavy duty stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I was just being in the spirit form. That's not true. See? That's back to the problem with, with Steve. He's got a body. He, what do you think his body went? We're going to talk about that. He was raised from the dead. Well, okay, I'm done with this body. It just, he needs it. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay, I don't need this anymore. Okay, just take that off. Yeah. Now, when he, when he, now, when he comes back, what is he going to do? Is he going to have a body? Well, can he materialize one? Well, no, wait a minute. Is he just kind of taking on and off a jacket? Is that what he's doing? Well, we see that our physical body is what we need to live on this planet. Uh-huh. You know, we need lungs to breathe. Here's, here's your problem. Here's your problem. Because you can't understand a body other than the kind of body you have. You want to take away his whole body. No, he's got a body. That's, but it's not the physical body. It's, it's physical, but it's not physical the way it is right now. Oh, and that yeah. was my question yeah. earlier. Yeah. Was it this physical body? Well, yeah, you're going to see him. When he comes back, you're going oh, yeah, yeah, to be able to touch him. Is that physical? You see, that's, that's, see, that's my whole point. I don't, we didn't look up all the passages. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he said, here, look. Why did he do that? Because they would know the very same Jesus that walked with him and hung on that cross has now been raised from the... And that's the Jesus you're going to see too. You're going to be able to touch him. It's a body. You see how Plato gets into all these things as we'll talk about? But hang in there. We'll keep, we'll keep doing this and you'll see what I mean. Okay, so all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. When he says go therefore, basically, okay, now here's 12 guys. <laughs> hey, think about the humor in the Bible. 12 guys. And Jesus says, oh, I got a small task for you. Go make disciples of the whole world. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but why did they do that? All authority. In heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm with you. You're not doing this by yourselves. I'm going with you. I'm always with you. Okay? That's, that's, yeah, say, thank you. He's mine. See, and so that's why then they could do this because, you know, okay, well, you, you get the point. Baptizing them, we'll talk about baptism in lesson 10. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's the Trinity teaching them. Cannot make disciples of Christ without teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Now, the reason for this is we're going to do this real quickly because, again, I'm watching the clock. I've got to watch my time. There is a judgment day. And I'm going to give you a couple of passages. We'll look at a few. If there is no judgment day, who cares whether you believe in Jesus or not? But because there is a judgment day, And because on that day, every human being that's ever been created will stand before Jesus Christ. And they will go one place or another in their relationship to Him. That's why He says, go and make disciples. Now, let me give you the passages real quick. We'll just look up uh, three of them, however. So, John 3, 36, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, Revelation 6, 16, 17. And I have more here, but I just want to do these here, watching my time. I'll give you more later if we have time. Okay, let's go to John 3, 36. And these are just representative of other passages we could look up. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath, what? Remains. Now, that's very important. I'm, I don't, I'm not going to take time to look it up. You have to trust me here. But in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are all by nature, all by nature, children of wrath. Now, we're back to a very important teaching, which you'll hear me say over and over again. Original sin. You know, babies aren't neutral. You know, there's no such thing as neutrality. Right? We're all born as sinners. And Ephesians 2 says we're all born under God's wrath. Because that's the way we're born, okay? And the only way to have this wrath removed, according to John 3, 36, is to believe in Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, God's wrath remains on you. This is why we're to go into all the world, we Christians, and tell as many people as possible. It's like a rescue mission. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. Um, let's see. Let's start at the middle of verse 9. They tell us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven with His body, <laughs> with His body, as we'll see, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Okay, and then the last one we'll look up, Revelation 6. Okay, let's start at 15, just a little bit of context. 15, 16, 17. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man hid in caves. Now all those people there in the context here, all, you see there's rich and poor and everything in between, right? But they're all unbelievers. Hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. The lamb is who? Jesus. Who's going to judge humanity? Jesus, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? So, the Christian church is on a rescue mission to go out and tell as many people as God gives us opportunity to tell people about Jesus, because one day Jesus is coming back, and we'll either go to heaven or to hell, which we'll talk about in Lesson 14, depending on our relationship to Him, trusting in Him, not our works, but His mercy and forgiveness. Okay, so that's why we have this. Now, this is called, let's do from this we learn. From this we learn, Christ gave His followers the Great Commission. You might want to highlight, circle, or do something with the word Great Commission. Some of you may know it, others may not. Uh, it's not in the Bible, but the Great Commission is Jesus telling His church to take His message into all the world and make disciples by baptizing and teaching. And then one day He'll come back. Okay, effective until the very end of time in which he commands us to make Christians of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God and teaching them to observe all he's told us to believe and to do. Okay, let's go to number five. What took place 40 days after his resurrection? Now, I'm going to do this now and I'll probably do it again next week. Uh, here's this 40 days again. But here's uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay, and then here's the tomb he was put in. Okay, and then he he rose from the dead, and then for forty days, we can look up several. He just kind of pops in and out. Okay, because he uses his divine power. Now, when I talk about the body and everything, I don't understand everything either intellectually, but I know what the Bible says, and and we don't always have to understand. It's like the virgin birth. Yeah, I mean, you either believe in the virgin birth or you don't. Well, this is the kind of same thing with this body. So you don't have to intellectually understand all this because I don't either. 
But I know it's there. He's got a body and he can do this. And he was just coming in and out because who is he? He's God. Now remember that. That's why he can do these marvelous things because he's not just man. He is man, but not just man. That's always the key. How could he walk on the water? Okay. How could he raise Lazarus? So that's what you remember when I say all these stunning things. Remember, he's God-man in one person. He can, As a man, he can do things a normal human being can't do. That's the key. Well, that's yeah. his divine nature. His divine nature. Uh, his, that's why I said last week, I gave an example of the two natures, the human and the divine. And I said it's not like they're two boards glued together, but rather it's like the divine nature permeates his human nature so that his human nature can do things a normal human nature can't do because the divine nature gives his human nature the ability to do that. Okay? Uh, Clarence. When he pops in and out, is this just to the apostles and their believers? Yes. Yes. For example, if he wanted to, let me back up. And, then, and I, I'm still not where I want to be, so be patient with me, but this will become clear, or not, not clear, clearer as we go along. The same Jesus that hung on the cross is right here in this room with us. Now listen very carefully, and I'll show you this as we go along as I'm watching the clock. Not just according to his divine nature, but the same Jesus who hung on the cross is right here in this room according to his divine nature and his human nature. And if he wanted to, if he wanted to, Clarence, he could materialize right here. Now let me show you where we're going with this, then I'll get back to my 40 days. And then be patient, because I haven't gotten to my punchline yet. If you say, and I, I know you're all smart enough to get this, if you say... The divine nature of Jesus is in one place, but his human nature is not in that place. What did you just do to the person of Jesus? You cut him in half, didn't you? And you made two Jesuses. You made a human Jesus and you made a divine Jesus. Oh, no, 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 no. Two natures is true, but there's only one Jesus. And the whole Jesus is present. Oh, this is, this is the stuff. Yeah. This is where it gets heavy duty. See, I can't get the helix out of my mind. Yeah, I know. And that's why you just you can't visualize this. You, you just have you just have to have to believe it. Okay, well the 40 days, then I gotta I gotta move on here. What do I do with my chalk? Here it is. Okay. So 40 days. Now the reason this is important is because what's gonna happen is he's gonna ascend into heaven, which we're about ready to get to. That's why I need to get to it. He's gonna ascend into heaven, which I'm gonna get to, and then for 10 days. The apostles are going to wait for, which we're going to hear about next week, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Okay, And the Holy Spirit is going to come on the day of Pentecost. And we'll go over this. We'll, we'll do this again next week. So I'll repeat this. Pentecost was already a Jewish holiday. Now, it's a Christian holiday too, isn't it? It was already a, a, a Jewish holiday in the Jewish church calendar. It was a harvest festival, which I'll tell you about next week. And what you're going to see here is Pentecost in the Greek means 50th. 40, 10 equals 50 because Jesus was crucified on the Passover. Jewish holiday Jewish holiday, okay, as we're going to see. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. What took place 40 days after his resurrection? Luke 24, he led them out of a city as far as Bethany, where he raised his hands and blessed them. As he was blessing them, he was departed from them and was taken up into heaven. Now, you might want to highlight the word heaven. 
Heaven here means the dwelling of God. Where is the dwelling of God? Everywhere. Everywhere. And I'm going to show you that. Passages are coming. Remember what Jesus said in the other passages? All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Now, this is where it gets real tough that I can't, I can't visualize this either. As a matter of fact, this is one of the most difficult intellectual teachings. I mean, the incarnation at Christmas is only the, the, the toughest one. But I can't visualize either the body of Jesus, but I know it's still, he still has a body, and it's everywhere. But anyway, yeah, please. You're reading in the green book, right? Yeah, I am. That's right. So what yeah. page, what page is it? Uh, page 31. Page 31, question 5. So he's taken up into heaven. Now, that's the dwelling of God. Remember, heaven in the Bible can mean one of three things. The little firmament or the atmosphere around the planet Earth, the whole vast universe, and then the dwelling of God. And remember, the dwelling of God even goes beyond the universe. Remember that? So... The, the, the dwelling of God is everywhere. And let me, I don't know if I said this when we, when we did this about God, but there's, it's real easy to say there's nothing larger than God. You can get that, right? If the universe is expanding, right, that means there's something beyond the expanding universe. That's God. But here's what I want you to understand, too. There's nothing smaller than God. So God is everywhere. God saturates, permeates everything. That's where Jesus is. Please. If God is everything. Yeah. No, 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 no. No, you said something I did not say. You said he is everything. I didn't say that. I said he's everywhere. He's everywhere. Yeah. But that's I think a, at the beginning we also said God is everything. Too. No, I did not. I never said that. That's pantheism. Okay. God is not this table. Okay. God is in this table. But there's a distinction between table and God. He's not the table. Okay, so when somebody goes to hell, does that mean that God is in hell? Oh, yeah. He's in charge of hell. God's in charge of hell, not the devil. The devil will be punished more than anybody. God's in charge of hell. So hell, though, is also the separation from God. That's correct. Let's put it this way. Yeah, I I don't want to do this. I want to do this now, so let me do it real quick because I'm watching the clock, and this is not our main point. Uh, The separation of God doesn't mean he's not there. He's not there in any loving way. He's only there in a punishing way. There's no love of God in hell. Yeah, that's what we're going to see. Yeah, but thank you for clarifying. No, he's he's in charge. But there's no love of God. So, so there's no way to sense His presence other than His punishment and wrath, yeah, which we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Um, good questions. Well, uh, Acts 1 says the same thing. Now, why do we have Luke and Acts? Well, if you didn't know this, Luke, the evangelist, wrote both of them. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, which you probably already know, but if you didn't know it, he also wrote the book of Acts. He wrote a two-volume work. And you might not know that because Acts, between Luke and Acts is John, right? But Luke wrote both. And so here's the point. Where Luke finishes his gospel, he picks up the same point at the beginning of Acts, which is a history book. And so at the beginning of Acts, he says he was taken up into heaven. That's the dwelling of God. God is everywhere. As they watched him and the skies, they went away. The two men dressed in white, these are angels, stood by uh, beside them said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking up in the sky? you got work to do. This Jesus who was taken up from you to heaven will come back in the same way. Now we're going to get back in lesson 14. See, just as they saw him leave visibly, he's going to come back visibly, as I'm going to show you in lesson 14. Well, it's not even Revelation. Yeah, yeah, but we don't even need Revelation. we got, we got an, all tons of other passages, which I'll show you. But Revelation's included. 
Okay, Hebrews 6.20, Jesus has entered into heaven, the dwelling of God, on behalf of our what? Our forerunner. Now, don't take what I'm going to say literalistically. These are just images and illustrations to help us to understand. But it's like my wife and I are planning to take a vacation in about the third week of June. And we hope to go to Victoria. And we're already making the plans. We're going to take the, uh, the, the boat up there from the dock of Seattle up to Victoria. And uh, we're going to make uh, room arrangements and everything. That's what we're doing right now. So then the third week of June shows up. We just go down to the dock. Everything's ready. Get on the boat. Go up to Victoria. The hotel's all ready. That's what Jesus is doing for you and me right now. For the next what? The next world. Now, again, don't take this literalistically. It's a figure of speech, an image. In other words, he's getting everything for the next world ready for everybody who believes in him. He's making preparations for that new world, which we'll talk about in Lesson 14. See, that's how I get you back to Lesson 14. Lesson 14. Lesson 14. John 17, 24, this is Jesus' Father. You see how similar this is to what we've said thus far. Father, I want those you have given me, and that's, that means faith, all those who trust in Jesus, because faith is a gift, as I'll show you. I want all those you have given me to be with me, what? Where I am. I want them to see that glory you have made mine. Now, we're going to talk about this. Now, watch this again. On the day of the resurrection, now watch up here. This is the Jesus we're going to see. The man Jesus and all his what? All his glory as God. That's what he says there. He says, I want all those you have given me, all those who trust in me as their Lord and Savior, to see the glory you have given me, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we're going to see. Okay, so from this we learn, Christ bodily, in plain view of the disciples, ascended into heaven. Remember, that's the dwelling of God. He is our forerunner in God's good time. We will follow Him and be with Him and see Him in His glory on the day of the resurrection. Turn the page, please. Now, here's this hard question. Remember, I don't understand this any better than you. I'm, I simply believe it, and I'm teaching you what the Bible says. But you're not going to understand it any more than I do. But this is what the Bible says, point six and seven. Where, you might want to highlight, circle, or do something with the word, where? Where is Christ since His ascension? And by Christ, we include His, his body. Remember, there aren't two Jesuses, one divine and one human. There's only one Jesus who's both. Where is He? Ephesians 4.10. Christ went up and beyond the heavens, that means to fill the, the very uh, dwelling of God, to fill what? The whole universe with His presence. Now here's the point. The words are simple, aren't they? It's not, the, the words are not complicated. The concept is complicated. That's why I can't draw a picture for you. But the words are clear, are they not? This Jesus Christ that walked around on this planet earth, that hung on that tree, that was raised from the dead, now fills the whole wide universe with his presence. Now, I can't draw a picture of that. As a matter of fact, I have tried and tried and tried in my own mind. I've studied this, and I figured out with my studies thus far, and I don't want to say I'm the end, the end all of all this study, but I've done a lot of study on this. I can't find anybody who explains this any better than I can. You know why? Because nobody can. But that's why, that's why I believe, and there's other passages too, as we're going to see here in just a little bit. That's why I believe the very same Jesus who hung on that cross is right here in this room, not just His divine nature, was his divine nature only on the cross? No. The human nature and the divine were together on the cross, right? Now, here's the point. That very same Jesus, 
divine and human, who loved me so much to die on that cross. That very same Jesus, man and God, is with me every day. The whole person. I can't understand that, but I believe it, because that's what he says. Yeah, please. For me, though, the problem begins with us when we stop believing any part of it. That's when it stops making sense. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to use our intellect with some things. But here's the point. If we try to use our intellect, we'll explain away the whole Christian faith. There comes a, this is the way I kind of explain it, and I'm not, this isn't original with me. Many Christians and great theologians throughout all the centuries have said this. You can kind of understand something up to a certain point, and then it's sort of like, uh, you know, you come up and then, intellectually what? That's it. Now faith takes over. Now let's, let's remind ourselves, and thank you for bringing this up, let's remind ourselves of this biblical truth. Look up Romans 11, which applies to all these great teachings. So we're not trying to say that Christians are stupid. We're not trying to say that Christians should be anti-intellectual. We're just saying the obvious that the intellect has its what? Its limitations. And finally, faith has to take over. Okay, look at Romans eleven thirty-three 33 and following. Oh, the depth. That's a good word, isn't it? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment and his paths beyond tracing out Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So again, we're not anti-intellectual. But the fact remains, our intellect is what? Is limited. Especially when it comes to the great things of I mean, I can't even understand great scientists. They start babbling on with this math and physics, and I'm just lost. Well, what makes me think I should be able to understand the things of God then? Right? So we shouldn't be ashamed to say, I believe it, because that's what God says. I don't have to understand it. Yes, Steve. Well, he tells us in his word that, you know, uh, um, those who, who utilize their sins, so you believe. Yeah. Thank you. That's another good one. That's, that's what uh, Jesus said to Thomas. Remember, Thomas wouldn't believe unless he what? Saw. And Jesus said, okay. And with his body, he said, okay, Thomas, here I am. You know, see it and everything. But then he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Exactly. Okay. Um, so he fills the whole wide universe. I don't understand it, but Jesus is everywhere. Just as he says in Matthew 28, 20, lo, I am with you what? Always. And it's the man Jesus who said that, not just the divine nature, the man Jesus. I am with you always to the close of the age, right? Okay, so from this we learn the exalted Christ, not only according to his divine, but also his human nature is everywhere and is also graciously with believers. Because if you don't believe that, you just cut the person of Jesus in two. You made a divine Jesus and a human Jesus. No, there's one Jesus who's divine and human together. That's the incarnation. Okay, number seven then. What then uh, do the scriptures mean when they speak of Christ as sitting at the right hand of God? And you know, it's too bad he uses this translation because you see where it says the place of supreme honor? 
That's an interpretation. Let's look in the NIV that actually has the right hand of God. And I'll explain this a little bit. And I'll give you other Bible passages so you can look up on your own about the meaning of the right hand of God because it's an important concept. So let's look up Ephesians 1. And if you want to compare it with the one that's in our green book, that's fine too. Uh, Let's start at 19. Paul has a way of putting long sentences together. (laughs) So we're going to have to take it in the middle here, but that's okay. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his what? Right hand where? In the heavenly realms. That's the dwelling of God. Far above all what? Rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the benefit of the church, which is his body. And it goes on from there. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you other passages. Let me tell you the meaning of the right hand of God. I'll give you other passages where you can look it up on your own. The right hand of God is not physical. Because outside of Jesus, God doesn't have a body, does he? God is pure spirit. It's only in the person of Jesus Christ that we can say God has a body. So for Jesus to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that's a figure of speech, not to be taken literally. So in other words, Jesus didn't go like this. And now he's waiting for the end of the world. No. The right hand of God is a figure of speech. We even use it in our English language. Okay? If we say someone's my right hand man, we mean basically that person has my what? All my authority and trust, right? He does whatever he does, I do. So in the Bible, the right hand of God means the power of God. So for Jesus to sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, now watch this, means that as a man... He always and fully uses the power of God. It's a figure of speech. So the man Jesus exercises the full power of God. Now let me give you a bunch of passages, if you like studying, and you can see this all throughout the Bible because it's used in many places. I'll give you two in the Old Testament, then the rest in the New Testament. Exodus, E-X, 15.6. Psalm, you're going to abbreviate P.S. if you want, 139, 10. Now here's some passages that will talk about the right hand of God. Matthew 26, 64. Mark 16, 19. There's going to be two in Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 3. And 8, 1. And finally, 1 Peter 3, 22. Now you can see just those passages, this idea of the right hand of God is not an isolated passage or thought because it means the symbol of the power of God. And when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty again, it means as a human being, He now exercises full power of God as a man. Okay, so from these passages, Christ sits at the right hand of God means that Christ occupies a position of supreme honor and glory. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
that Christ fully exercises the infinite power and dominion of God. He rules the universe. And what is most comforting to his believers, he governs all things in the interest of the church, of which he is the head. Now, let me give you a couple of ideas here uh, as what I mean. If you could say, God keeps your heart going, you can also say, Jesus keeps your heart going. If you say, the plant, God keeps the earth going around the sun, it's appropriate to say, the man, the man Jesus, keeps the earth going around the sun. If you say, God's in control of human history, watching over human history, you can also say, the man Jesus is in control of human history and watching over human history. In other words, whatever you can say about God, you can say about this man, Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, what in particular does the exalted Christ do for us when we sin? And unfortunately, we Christians still have sin, as we'll talk about in some future lessons. But in Romans 8.34, it says, Christ is where? At the right hand or side of God. There's another passage I didn't give you. Romans 8.34, And He pleads with God for us. In other words, Jesus Christ, as God in human form, is constantly our Savior. Uh, When it says He pleads for us, you mustn't take that, again, literalistically. This is a figure of speech, meaning that God the Father is going to accept you, despite the fact that you still have what? You still have sin, but God the Father is going to accept you as His dear, precious child for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's what that passage means. He is always your Savior. There's never a time He's not your Savior. It's 24-7. He's your Savior, always. That's what that passage means in figurative language. And then 1 John 2, 1 and 2, this is very similar. This is the great apostle John, my little children. I'm telling you all this so you will stay away from sin. But if you sin, there is someone to plead for you before the Father. His name is Jesus Christ, the one that is all as good and who pleases God completely. Who pleases God completely, that would be his active obedience, wouldn't it? Remember? He is the one who took God's wrath against our sins upon himself and who brought us into fellowship with God. So, in other words, Romans 8 and 1 John 2, if I can put it again in sort of more modern terminology, Jesus is always our defense attorney. He's always our defense attorney, who always says to the Father, Dear Father, forgive him, forgive her. He trusts in me. I kept the commandments for him, for her. I died for him, for her. Accept him, Father. Accept her, Father, for my sake. He's our defense attorney. Okay, uh, number nine, Christ died for us. Christ lives for us. What's the purpose of all this? We've got some great passages to finish up here. First Corinthians, this is Paul writing his first letter to the church in Corinth, Greece, which is about due west of Athens. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Now, you are not your own. Remember, if you've been with me, you remember, the essence of original sin is living for... Self, that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They were created to live for God. They said, I think we want to live for ourselves. And so he's reminding Christian, no, 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 you are not your own. You're not your own boss. That's, that's the way of sin, an original sin. No, you're not your own. You belong to God. And he bought you. Now, what's awesome here, of course, is he bought us, and I'm going to give you a Bible passage. He bought us not with money. 
bought us with the blood of Christ. And let's look that up. Would you write this passage down? We'll look at it that goes with this one. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. And you'll see this. This is how he bought us on the cross. Okay, here we go. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Or what's another word I could use? Bought. Yeah, bought. From the empty way of life handed down to you from your fathers, but you were bought with what? The precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish. That was the cost for us to be bought and brought back to God. Okay, then the next page is Revelation 5, 9. says, you were killed. That's the crucifixion, isn't it? You were crucified, and by your death you what? Bought men for God. I have a little story I always tell here. Uh, sometimes I get choked up, and sometimes I don't. But hopefully I won't get choked up. But the little story is this. A little boy, let's say, oh, let's say he's 10 years old. He just loves to do crafts and makes things. And so he goes down to the hobby store and he gets this little uh, uh, little uh, box where you can put together a sailing ship. You know, and some of them has really intricate detail on there. You've got to put all the, all the wood together to make this little sailing ship or something like that. Uh, for Trevor, we'll say it's like a ship for Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that. And he's going to make this thing. Well, he's got to put all the pieces together. He's got to paint all those little tiny parts, you know, and then very carefully glue all those parts on and everything, put the mast on there. and Oh, a lot of hard work. Ten years old. And after a while, he's got it all done, and he is so proud. And so he thinks, I wonder if it will sail. So he goes out on the outer edge of town somewhere, and there's a huge pond or lake there. And he takes this boat that he so lovingly made, and he puts it down in the water, and he shoves it off, and it's just floating wonderfully. It's incredible. And then unexpectedly, a breeze comes up, fills in the sails, and takes the little ship too far out in the water. And he can't get it back. And so the boat sails off on the other side. Well, of course, he's dejected, and he goes home. Well, what happens, he didn't know this has happened. Well, that little sailboat, after a couple hours, makes it all the way over to the other side of the lake. And another boy, who's, let's say, 16, 17 years old, finds the boat. Well, he doesn't want the boat because he's older. But he thinks, hey, this is really nice. I bet I could get some money for this down at the pawn shop. So he goes downtown, goes into the pawn shop. In a pawn shop, you know, you give this to the owner, And in exchange for the boat, the owner gives you what? Money. And so the 17-year-old goes off. He's happy. He's got his money. And because the owner of the pawn shop thinks this boat is really cute and good, and boy, he's never seen one quite like this before, he takes the boat and he puts it out in the display window where people can walk by and look at it. The next day, guess who's downtown? The little 10-year-old boy, right, who made the boat. And he's walking by the window and... He looks in the window. There's his boat. So he goes into the pawn shop and he goes up to the counter. The owner says, hey, that's my boat in the, in the window there. I'd like to have it back. And the owner of the pawn shop says, well, son, I don't know if that's your boat or not. Well, it is. Well, I don't know that. I'm sorry. If you want that boat, you're going to have to buy it. But it's my boat. Well, I'm sorry. If you want the boat, you have to buy it. Oh. So he goes home, goes to his uh, piggy bank. In his room, cracks it open. He has exactly what he needs to buy that boat, but it takes everything he's got. Okay, And he goes down to the pawn shop with his money, with a big smile on his face. 
says, here's the, I want that boat. That's my boat. I, I shouldn't have to pay for this, but I'm going to pay for it. So he pays for it, right? Okay, the boat's yours. So they get it out of the window. And as he's walking out, he's holding that wonderful little boat there. And he says to the boat, I now own you twice. I made you. And when you went away, I bought you back. And that's what God has done for us. He made us. And yet we're born living for self, trying to do our own thing, ignoring God, right? And so to get us back, right, he buys us, not with silver or gold, but the blood of Jesus. And so now he owns us twice. He made us. And then when we drifted away from him, he brought us back with the blood of Christ. And so we belong to him. And that's why then we just can't live any way that we, we want. Or on those occasions when we do, we call that confession. <laughs> so we can receive God's forgiveness, which we have in abundance in Jesus Christ. Okay, Romans 14, 7 through 9. None of us lives to himself. Now we know why. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. In other words, as long as we live in this world, we're trying to live for Jesus Christ. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then you see, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. He died for all, that they who live should no longer live, what? For themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Now, none of us does this perfectly. We'll talk about this in some future lessons. But every Christian has the desire to live for Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. Remember, we say this, we don't try to live a certain life to get something from God. We try to live a certain kind of life because we already have everything from God in Jesus Christ. Now, if you write down the last passage here, that's very similar to 2 Corinthians 5.15. You've seen it, but I want to uh, re-emphasize it. Galatians, G-A-L, 2.20. And really, Paul speaks for all Christians here. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That's original sin, isn't it? Want to do my own thing. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is, who bought me on the cross. Okay. Uh, boy, I just about four minutes till nine. So let's see. I, we've gone through some really deep stuff tonight. Uh, one last thing, and then I'm going to uh, open up for final questions and comments before we start wrapping things up. When we talk about Jesus in terms of his life, we talk about his humiliation and his exaltation. Whenever we talk about humiliation and exaltation, we're never referring to his divine nature because the divine nature can't be humbled and the divine nature can't be exalted. So whenever we talk about in theology, the humiliation of Christ or the exaltation of Christ, we're always talking about his human nature. Now, what is his humiliation? It means before his, or, or everything right up to his death, when he was walking around, he was always what? Always God in human form from the moment of his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But his humiliation is this. Here's his humiliation. As a man, he did not always use his power as God. And as a man, he never fully used his power of God. 
So the key phrase is, he never fully or always used his power as God as a man. That's his humiliation. Because he could have, right? I mean, for example, if you've ever seen a Groundhog Day or Bruce Almighty or something like that or a movie like that, here's the point. In those movies, and you don't have to have seen the movie if you've never seen it, what if you woke up one day and you realized you had at your very control the very power of God? Now, come on. I know what you'd say. This has possibilities. <laughs> That's what Jesus had. He had at his very disposal what? The very power of God. The humility of Christ is he chose not to take advantage of that. Not to use it for... By the way, the devil's temptations, all three of the temptations were for Jesus to use his divine power for his own selfish needs. So his humility is he chose not to always or fully use his power as God. Ah, but once he's raised from the dead and ascends into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as a man, he's exalted. As a man, he always uses the power of God. As a man, he fully uses the power of God. So the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. Okay, any loose ends? I know we've gone through a lot of deep stuff. I'm, hopefully we'll get some more questions next week. But any loose ends about what we talked about tonight before we wrap things up? Did you say that the passage, uh, I can't remember if it's, um, I can't remember what it is, but it says that, speaking of Jesus, that he will become lower than the angels. Yes, that's his humiliation. That's, when it talks about him become lower than the angels, that's his humiliation. That as a man, I mean... You, you see him walking around. It's like you see him get, let's pretend, let's kind of, we can go back in time. And we see him getting kind of tired. You know, like the in John 6, the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, he says, like, right here, like, oh, he sits down and says, oh, you know. Says, well, Jesus, why don't you use your divine power? If you're tired, just use your divine power. You won't be tired. He chose not to do that. He got tired. Yeah. So the same thing, he became low like that. Yeah. While he was a man, and the miracles that he uh, performed... Those were mostly because of the compassion he felt for the suffering. Oh, of course. They, they were twofold. Never, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. For himself. Oh, no, never for him. That's the whole point. He used all of this in service to others. Exactly. Exactly. He, what, whenever he did use his power, he didn't use his power to win the lottery, did he? He used his power to heal. Right? He didn't use his power to live with King Herod in the palace. Right? You're right. So all his miracles, they had a double function. They were reflections of his genuine love and compassion for a lost humanity. But the very miracles also showed who he who he's what? In two things. One, it showed who he was in his compassion and in his power. Because that's a good, isn't that a good combination? Compassion and power. You know, compassion without power or power without compassion. But he had compassion with power. Yeah, that's right. Anything else for... Yes, please. Um, what I can't understand is why the, the, the Pharisees and stuff couldn't accept Jesus, but who else was doing this kind of miracle? Well, that's a good example, and I, I, let me give you a quick answer, because I could go on and on and on about that, and that's 9 o'clock. But to make a long story short, miracles don't convert anybody. You're converted by the Word of God. And the word of God converts you, and the miracles only confirm your faith. You hear that? The miracles confirm your faith. Yeah, this is, boy, that's who I thought he was. But the miracles in and of themselves don't convert anybody. 
That's, that's kind of what the whole New Testament says. Yeah. Please. I have a question that goes back to the very beginning. Okay. You said that uh, we were talking about death and burial and how our soul goes straight up to heaven. Right, to be with Christ. Yep. I don't understand, um, not being a Catholic, but having much exposure to what purgatory is. There is no purgatory. We'll talk about that. Listen, there is no purgatory. That's the Roman Catholic Church is the only church that believes in purgatory. To the best of my knowledge, not even the Greek Orthodox Church believes in purgatory. Only the Roman Catholic so Church. Explain that to me later. Yeah, I can't do it tonight. Yeah, but but it's, there's nothing in the Bible. It's real simple. There's nothing in the Bible that came Where did they get it from? from the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. Yeah, which I'll talk, from paganism, which I'll explain to you maybe later, lesson 14. But there's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. As a matter of fact, did you see the popes getting rid of limbo? You know what limbo is? Limbo is not in the Bible either, but it was made up in the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages to explain where, where, where uh, children who died in infancy went and other people that maybe didn't hear about Jesus or something, and they invented limbo, but now the Pope wants to get rid of it. And then I had a smart aleck member in my Bible class a couple of weeks ago ask, well, is he going to empty it out before he gets rid of it? <laughs> so they have a whole structure. That, have you ever heard of Dante's Divine Comedy? You ever heard of Dante and all that? That's where that language all comes from. Purgatory's in there, limbo, and all this stuff. Yeah, but it's nothing in the Bible. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in Lesson 14. But there is no purgatory. Yeah. And uh, real quick, too, purgatory's for believers. Did you know that? Purgatory's not for unbelievers. Well, I don't quite understand the whole thing. Somebody's supposed to pray for you to get out of it? Yeah, that's right. Because only believers go to purgatory. But what happens is... Why do, you, why do you have to pray to get out of it? Because they can get you out faster. Because you're being punished. For, for your sins. Oh, for your sins. Yeah. You're a believer. Okay. But because of your sins, you're in purgatory. That's right. And you'll eventually go to heaven, but this is a stopping off point. And people pray for you and they get you out of there faster. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. I mean, all of them. Amen. <laughs>